It's time for the Mirror Football Podcast with Sam Matterface. Hello, the Mirror Football Podcast is back with me, Sam Matterface, and the producer, Big Tom. On the show this week, the Sunday Mirror's Tom Hopkinson, who was at the bridge as Chelsea were well beaten by Manchester City. He's got news on those Conte rumours. And talking of knee-jerk, we ask, is Klopp of the Cop turning into a bit of a flop? And why didn't Koeman prioritise up top? Is he next in line for the chop? Oh, God. Uh, also this week, 21 years of Wenger, but when should he have gone? Lauren, who is absolutely superb in our interview. Fantastic. And an invincible as well, tells us what Wenger did on the training ground. Everybody wants to know the answer to that question. Uh, we go to Barcelona. Serious issues, serious insight from radio and goal TV journalist Danny Sanabri. One of the best interviews I think we've done on the podcast. Without a doubt, great guy. The Ferrore and the future. It's real. They have thought about leaving La Liga. Fantasy football, Big Tom's big news, and who is the most influential player in the Premier League? It's all on this week's unbelievably good Mirror Football Podcast. The Mirror Football Podcast. Hello, folks. A gentle reminder that you can tweet us at any time at Stay On Your Feet. With me this week is the producer, Big Tom. Hello. Hiya, you right? Yeah, good, thank you. And little Tom Hopkinson, who we noticed this week, uh, looks rather like Darren Fletcher of that uh, their BT Sport. Uh, a, a comparison that you're you're rather happy with as well, aren't you? Because he's quite buff now. <laughs> who, me or him? He's quite buff now. He's been working out on the weights. He looks quite good. Well, I, I'm better take it. I mean, I don't know whether... Is that, is that two compliments or two insults in uh, in the opening link? Uh, it, I presume Little is my svelte figure you're talking about as Absolutely, well. absolutely. Rather than height, yeah. Um, but... shall, we, shall we start with Liverpool and Everton? Because no doubt who's in hotter water, um, Ronald Koeman. But the temperature is rising on both Klopp and the Dutchman, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, uh, it's been a, a strange old start to the season on Merseyside, hasn't it? I mean, if you think about Liverpool, they, they started so in, in such explosive fashion, um, uh, playing... Uh, so well going forward, scoring goals, and, and it, it papered over any cracks that, that we thought might have been there from last season. But all of a sudden, uh, the goals dry up a little bit, and, and the defence uh, they start showing the same old problems. And of course, Jurgen Klopp is now open to these accusations that he, he he knew what the problem was. Every one of us knew what the problem was when it came to Liverpool last year that they were flaky at best at the back, and uh, that situation wasn't addressed, even though they had plenty of time after the Virgin. Jill Van Dijk um, transfer bid fell through. Plenty of time to go out and get another defender. So that's an ongoing situation. The temperature's rising on Jurgen Klopp because people are frustrated that uh, he didn't address uh, what was an obvious problem. With Ronald Koeman, we thought he had addressed uh, many problems. We knew they were going to struggle for goals given the fact that Romelu Lukaku had left. You can't just sell a man who's going to bag you 20, 25 goals every season and expect players who, who haven't done it. I mean, Wayne Rooney hasn't scored that many goals for a while. I know he'd argue that he's not played as a lone striker, but Calvert-Lewin as well, he's just making his way into the team. And the is, you know, I mean, crikey, uh, we didn't think he'd even get a look in at this stage. So they, they've put, He didn't even have uh, a locker up until the weekend, did he? And, well, and they just yeah. got a club suit. <laughs> yeah, they've, they've put... They've put their, their eggs in, in the wrong baskets, if you like. I mean, they've signed, made some good signings. I mean, I, I do think that the lads they've brought in, I think... Have they? have they? Have they really made some good yeah, signings? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think they have. But I think Michael Keane is, is, is a very good defender long-term. I think Jordan Pickford, look, he conceded a lot of goals last season when he was at Sunderland, but you know he's playing in a team that was relegated. So I think... You know, I, I think that's part of the course when that happens. I think, I think those two are the standout signings. I think they're, they're, they're they, good. They, they paid a lot they of money are, for I mean, Gilfie Sigurdsson and they haven't played him in the right position. They spent £5 million on Sandro, who's an under-21 striker for, for Malaga last year, has never scored a goal in the Premier League. Um, and they bought Davy Klassen for £20 million quid. Now, why spend that money on, uh, on Davy Klassen when you're already going to buy Sigurdsson and Rooney and Vlasic? Well, look, the, the one thing, I mean, Sigurdsson is, is a very good signing. I think we all agreed that he's been excellent for Swansea. I know it didn't work out for him before when he went to Tottenham and people might wonder if, you know, when he steps up to a bigger club and there's a bit more pressure, a bit more focus on him, uh, that, that he might not be able to handle the spotlight. But I, I, it's too soon to judge him at Everton and, and I'm confident he will come good. Now, Whenever you hear Edwin van der Sar talk, who knows plenty about football, he has played with some incredible players, and for him to the way he 
um, almost gushes about how Klassen was when he was with Ajax. I, I think we have to listen to that and accept that it's going to take him more than a handful of games to get up to speed with the Premier League. Look at Paul Pogba last season. He came in. I know he had the weight of the fee, and he's a, he's a different level to David Klassen. I'm not trying to compare the two, but some players don't come in and hit the ground running. Mm. Morata's done it this year, and you have to doff your cap to the way he did that. But some don't. It took Pogba a season. And this is a man who's played... Uh, in England before. He's familiar with Manchester. I know he's not got loads of Premier League experience, but it still took him a long time to get going. So I think we have to give Klassen that time. Kuman needs to sign a striker in January, but we're not telling him anything that anyone doesn't know in that. Um, Kuman seems to me as if he's talking himself out of a job, though. I, I spoke to him on uh, Thursday night last week in a television interview in which he, he thought that their game, the start of the match against um, uh, in the European League against Apollon Limassol was shocking. He said we were poor right from the very start. He said uh, that the team is struggling at the moment. And then on Sunday when he dropped loads of senior players and things really could have been different if Sigurdsson had taken one of those early chances on Sunday. It would have changed completely the, the mentality of the game. He then turned around and started saying, I'm proud of my players. My players are great. It's a good group, blah, 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 blah. And it's almost as if he sort of, he doesn't really know what's going to happen next. I also also heard. I don't know how true this story is. I did hear that at halftime during the game uh, at the weekend, Bill Kenwright went into the dressing room. Normally, mild mannered Bill Kenwright went mm. into the dressing room to find out what the hell was going on because it looked as if they were performing so badly. I mean, it sounds like an outlandish thing to happen, but if, if that is happening, there, there's serious issues that's, there. That's really out of character for Bill Kenwright. But Everton have never spent this amount of money before, so he. Grant is under new ownership, but there's there's more pressure. There's never been this kind of pressure or indeed optimism on uh, that side of Stanley Park for a long time now. At the beginning of the season, Everton fans were buoyant. They were really optimistic about and quite their rightly so. Absolutely, but um, I I kind of agree with what you you said a little while ago that that Everton gambled with not getting Sigurdsson by signing those other players beforehand. They weren't sure of getting Sigurdsson until later on in the transfer window and similarly with Liverpool they have gambled massively on Virgil van Dijk and then didn't get anything at least Everton got a couple other players in but um but no that that Bill Kenwright going into the dressing room that that's unheard of yeah if it's if if it's true of course I mean it's certainly something that someone told me uh yesterday afternoon um the atmosphere there is quite negative as well because they're always putting pressure on you and that can cause you issues as well can't it Tom the idea of like as soon as you make a misplaced pass or you start going backwards people getting on you do the crowd have a responsibility to try and see this bad patch through uh, I, I think that'd probably be a little bit too simplistic. I mean, I mean, look, Goodison Park is is one of those fantastic old cathedrals that we'd like to call them of football. You know, where the stands are so close, it's quite an intimidating, uh, intimidating place to go. Stand so close to the pitch, you can hear just about every word that's being said from the pitch, but also what's being said in the stands as well. And, and when there is that air of negativity uh, around a place like that, you know, when you've got all those thousands of people feeling a bit doom and gloom and, and lacking confidence themselves, then I think that will transmit. It's only going to take a couple of results for, for everyone to get buoyant again, for Wayne Rooney maybe to score a couple of goals and get back to how he was at the start of the season in the first couple of games. And and this can lift. I, I, I think the problem that Everton find themselves in at the moment, I mean, a couple of stories coming out in the papers this morning. One uh, is Farad Mashiri talking and saying that Ronald Koeman has got his, he, the club's absolute full backing. Another story saying that one or two of the players think that he's Mina suggests he wants to leave the club already. But I don't see where Everton go uh, at the moment. I know there's the link with Carlo Ancelotti now he's out of work, but uh, we know the way Carlo has been when he's left jobs before. He's always had a little bit of time off. And it, it doesn't really matter who they bring in until they address this centre-forward issue, then then nothing is really going to change. So, yes, the crowd can can maybe help them. You know, it's the old chicken and egg situation, isn't it? What comes first, the, the atmosphere or the performances? But until they get through to January, until they sign a new centre-forward, then they just have to get their heads down. The old cliche, it's a, you know, a transitional season. Players have been brought in uh, and they have to muddle through and uh, hope that things will get better after January. Four goals, 77 chances. It is certainly bottom half stuff. Uh, let's uh, talk about Liverpool then because obviously you watched that game against Newcastle at the weekend. Massive Liverpool fan, uh, but you weren't very happy afterwards. 68% possession, 17 attempts, expected goals 1.55, but more dropped points. What's happening? Well, it's it's just 
nothing's happening. I mean, Mane is is slowly coming back from the suspension and he looked a shadow of a player. He didn't look like the effervescent, kind of all-powerful, all kind of very direct player that he usually is. Coutinho, I mean, you, you can't argue with the goals that he scored. Three goals, three games. He just looks unbelievable. But we go back to the story that we were talking about just now, the defence. Have you signed any defenders? No. And I... Who knows what's going behind the scenes? I'm not a Klopp critic. I think Klopp's a fantastic coach, but he's not a fantastic defensive coach. And they must have gambled on Virgil Van Dijk coming in January because otherwise, come, come, I can't can believe I, I can't believe that they wouldn't have signed anyone as a stopgap. Can, can I ask you, Tom? There, how, yeah. how you can call him a fantastic coach if he's not a good defensive coach as well? Surely, as a manager, you have to be all round uh, an all round coach, or you have to have somebody who is drilling. The defence, part of your management staff, to be to be to be sort of heralded and hailed in that kind of category. No, I take your point, and and yeah, he's he's clearly got defensive failings, and this perhaps leads us onto a question about his his wider team and whether um, the the support's been given from the, the the guys that have followed him so faithfully around. So he yeah, needs I, better I, coaches alongside him. You think? Perhaps. I mean, I know that when people often talk about how astute Rafa is when it comes to defensive coaching, but when he was at Liverpool, I know he relied heavily on Paco and, and other people like that to, to get that defensive solidity and have the preparation done in, beforehand. But but no, I, I accept the, the point. But but my, I, I can't imagine they'd be that negligent to rely on a defence that was so culpable last year without something happening very soon with regard to Virgil van Dijk. I can't believe they do that. He, he isn't the only central defender that is available in the world, though, is he? I mean, at the end of the day, you can't just go, well, we want Virgil van Dijk, and if we're not going to have Virgil van Dijk, we ain't going to have anybody, so we're not going to wor- worry about what happens with our defence. No, and it's a gamble, and it's a gamble that's so far not paid off. But we are only just into October, so I've got to, I've got, I've got to think that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what strikes me with it is, is given Jurgen Klopp's knowledge, you know, look, he's he going to know the German league inside out. Are you telling me there wasn't one defender somewhere in, in Germany that he couldn't have picked up for a lot less money? I'm not saying don't go for Van Dijk. You know, I think, I think Van Dijk is an excellent defender. But w- w- even when that failed, wasn't there someone that he could maybe have nipped out and picked up for 20 million? Oh, uh, there, there were lots. Know, Subatich or somebody like that. I mean, I know there was there was a mandate flying around to bring Subatich to the Premier League during the transfer window. Now, he might not be the answer to all of Liverpool's problems. He might still have a rick in him. He's not got Premier League experience. But was it worth a gamble, given how flaky we knew Liverpool's defence were last season? And look, I think I think Jurgen Klopp. I think the pressure. Uh, he's clearly rising with him. He's getting a little bit more narky in his media briefings. He is getting sick and tired of being asked uh, the questions. But, you know, he's brought Andy Robertson in, who uh, I've seen Liverpool two or three times this season. Robertson played in one game and he looks superb, not only from a defensive point of view, uh, albeit that was, I think, against Crystal Palace, if memory serves, but, but he's crossing going forward. You know, he was on the front foot so much. It was that old cliche again of, you know, because he was attacking, Palace were having to defend and, and, and not even looking to get forward themselves. So I, I, I just I, it just seems strange that, you know, look, Young Klopp has won a lot more in football management than I could ever dream of winning. But I, I think there are so many people within Anfield watching games week in, week out, starting to question why they can see such deficiencies in the team and they aren't being addressed. On the go, on your phone, on the website. The Mirror Football Podcast. This weekend, Catalonia was involved in what the Spanish government called an unofficial referendum for independence. Barcelona is very much at the centre, the beacon of Catalonia. The football club itself over the years has represented that region's struggle to become independent from Spain. Uh, Since the vote, Barcelona refused to play in front of their supporters against Las Palmas at the weekend. Gerard Piquet has been in tears giving an emotional explanation and now in preparation for key World Cup games has had problems uh, in training ahead of their matches for the World Cup qualifiers. He and his Barca colleagues are going to be under extra scrutiny. Let's speak to Danny Sinabre who's from Cadena Cope radio station in Barcelona and Goal TV and you can hear there in the background there's still people on the streets. Danny, thank you very much uh, for, for, for joining us. What's the situation right now? Uh- well, the situation right now is that uh, people are protesting on the, on the street uh, right below the PP uh, seat, which is, the, of course, the government 
political party here and they are uh, screaming about independence they are screaming the name of Gerard Piquet I don't know if you can hear it I'll, I'll put the the mobile phone a little closer but people are right now uh, protesting against everything that's going on 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 this country and and it's been like that since first time in the morning and it's gonna be like that tomorrow and the day after and these are very difficult days but very interesting of course and intense political and sports uh, days uh, this week. Just explain to us why it's so entwined between politics and sport and why Gerard Piquet is such a big symbol of this independence movement. Yeah, well, the, the thing is that uh, there's a lot of people that don't like to mix up sports and, and uh, politics, but uh, here it's very difficult because uh, Barcelona, FC Barcelona has always represented uh, freedom, the, the the slogan of the club is more than a club, and it's not only about the way of playing or or, or the players, it's more about uh, when fascism and the Franco regime here in Spain uh, was dominant in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, uh, a lot of president of Barcelona and supporters of Barcelona were banned, were forced to do things that they didn't want to do, and FC Barcelona is always the symbol or, or the, the representation of fighting against that. So, uh, of course, time has passed and it should be different now, but it seems like we're turning back the clock a little bit and we're going back to uh, those dark ages. So FC Barcelona represents that and it's mixed up and you cannot separate it now, even if you want to, which I would, but it's not possible because um, also... The national anthem here is, uh, is always uh, received uh, with whistles and with uh, sounds. Uh, people are not happy with, with Spain, and that's just who FC Barcelona is. And, of course, there are a lot of FC Barcelona supporters who don't agree, but uh, the majority of the people, yeah, they, they think that, that uh, this is wrong. And Gerard Piquet stands for that. Gerard Piquet uh, has always said that Catalonia should vote. He went... To the, uh, to the referendum, he voted, he posted a photo of himself voting, and of course, that's not well received in Madrid and the rest of Spain. Danny, you, you mentioned there that Barcelona's motto is more than a club. Um, what do you think of their decision to play the game behind closed doors without its supporters on that day of the referendum? Well, I, I think it was wrong. I understand the, the point of view, but uh, here's the thing. FC Barcelona could have done two things, and I, and I was talking uh, about this yesterday with Josep Bives, who is the uh, uh, the you know, the, the voice uh, the voice of the, of the presidential uh, people here in Barcelona. He's the spokesman. That's the word that I was looking for. He's the spokesman for Barca. I did and, think you and, said at one stage you spoke to Justin Bieber there for a second and I was a little bit yeah, worried. No, no, no. Justin Bieber, uh, fortunately, he's not part of anything <laughs> in Barca, but <laughs> Uh, Josep Bibes is his name, uh, Josep Bibes, and he's the spokesman of, of FC Barcelona uh, presidential board, and, and he was admitting that. Uh, they had two options for me from my point of view and, and for everybody here, that they could have played the game uh, normally with people and make it, make it a party for freedom, uh, an opportunity for people to scream, uh, to, to let uh, their voices heard, or they could have not played the game and they, of course, they would have been with uh, uh, six points. They, they would have lost six points in La Liga, but uh, they would have uh, stand for, the, for what's happening in Catalonia, and they would have uh, shown the world that they don't care about the six, the six points. And they took the middle road, you know, which is the, more, the easiest one. But for me, it's wrong, and it's uh, that they played, but uh, uh, with closed doors and nobody in the stadium. Uh, they say that they were looking for repercussion and they did that of course it's a powerful image to watch come now empty but uh, nobody agreed with that because uh, for example Carlos Villarrubi which is uh, vice president of FC Barcelona resigned he resigned because he was not happy uh, he didn't agree with uh, the decision of Bartomeu the president and he resigned so it's a very difficult situation it was a hard choice but for me it was a wrong one so do you think now that there is a, there's a conflict, there's a wedge between the, the Barcelona hierarchy and its fans? Is that, is that going to be a conflict we'll see sure. in the next no. match day? Sure. Uh, th th there has been a lot of conflicts, to be honest, because uh, some of them were uh, sports matters. But uh, what happened with Neymar this summer 
um, everybody uh, in the stadium, even when Barcelona was winning against Espanyol and it was an easy game and they scored four goals, but people were screaming, asking for Bartomeu's uh, resignment, you know, his demission. So um, there's always uh, there's always a conflict these days with with uh, Barcelona president, but yeah, uh, everybody in the media, everybody in the social uh, sphere here in Barcelona has protested against that decision. I, I don't know. I mean, there are more important matters right now than than FC Barcelona games. I don't know if that will be much of a conflict, but you can be assured that uh, people didn't receive well that decision. Okay, uh, let's just talk about what could happen next. Um, focusing mainly on uh, FC Barcelona, because if you take the conclusion to its nth degree and Catalonia does become independent, what happens to mm. Barcelona, the club? Because you mentioned uh, Bartomeu, um, and he suggested this week that there is there is a possibility that if Catalonia becomes independent, they'll confirm uh, that they'll consider playing yeah. elsewhere. I mean, could you ever see that happening? Yeah, that's that's a million dollar question, the million pounds question. If you're in in London or in uh, in uh, England, but yeah, nobody knows what's going to happen next. Uh, even uh, president of FC Barcelona, uh, Jose Maria Bartomeu, he he said that that it's not a decision that's taken that they. They have thought about it, but they will uh, have to make a decision with time, with patience, and they, they didn't want to be too fast. So uh, my recollection and what everybody agrees here, even in, in the rest of Spain, is that this year, this season, FC Barcelona will finish, of course, La Liga. Uh, they will play in Spain, and probably next season they will play in Spain too, even if uh, Carlos Puigdemont, the president of Catalonia, or whoever uh, declares independence for for Catalonia. Um, whatever happens this season, I don't see Barcelona playing elsewhere and probably next season either. But from here on, anything can happen. We, we have talked about this and we have made special programs, radio shows and TV shows about this, about what would happen if Catalonia becomes independent. We did that uh, in the last five years and, and there were a lot of different uh, answers and one of them even was that they could ask for the French League they could ask even the Premier League, even the Scottish League. Uh, I don't know. They they could have asked. Uh, they they could ask elsewhere. To hey, am I allowed to play your league? But but of course that's. I, I'm not sure that that's entirely FC Barcelona's choice because I guess uh, Real Madrid and La Liga has something to say about it because even if Catalonia becomes independent, I don't think they want to lose a Barca Madrid. You know, I don't think La Liga or Real Madrid wants to lose all the money involved in an FC Barcelona-Real Madrid game. So there's that also. Um, what happens, do you think, between the rivalry now between Real Madrid and Barcelona? It's all already quite sort of combustible. But going forward, is it going to make it even worse? These huge games, these El Clasicos that we watch on such a regular basis, which gets everybody's attention. Are they going to be even bigger now as a result of what's happened this weekend? Yeah, yeah, of course. Not not, not for the players, because I, I, I don't think that the players in the pitch uh, hate each other or anything like that. But yeah, for the fans in the standings, of course, it's going to be rougher, it's going to be tougher. And um, uh, especially around the figure of uh, Gerard Pique, because uh, he has uh, been brave. He has, uh, he has a position. He has, uh, he has been very active on Twitter. He has uh, let the world know that he doesn't agree with everything that Spain is doing. So when Pique plays in Bernabeu, he's, he's also, there's already uh, uh, possibilities of problems uh, involving that. But it's going to be a little more difficult for him uh, on, the, on, the next, uh, on the next few seasons. That's for sure, yeah. And do you think, despite this pressure, and there's there's an awful lot of uh, pressure that he's taken from the fans at the training ground, do you think he'll start for Spain this week, PK? Yeah. Uh, yesterday, we also interviewed Julen Lopetegui, who is the Spanish national uh, team coach, and and he said that uh, the situation will be normal from the football point of view. That that he thinks that PK is a wonderful player, which he is. And that he's gonna play or not play uh, like a normal situation. That he's gonna uh, start for Spain. That he's gonna play. He, he didn't say specifically start for Spain this week, but of course he will be. He will still be the starting 
central defender uh, uh, along uh, Sergio Ramos, next to Sergio Ramos in, in the Spanish national team. Nothing's going to change that. And uh, he's trying, Lopetegui is trying to talk to Piqué and say, hey, uh, put the volume down. Maybe don't, don't make uh, that noise because it's not going to be good for us. But I'm counting on you. You're counting on us. You want to play. We want you to play. So despite all the pressure and and the fact that yesterday he was received with any kind of screams and of insults and and of uh, you know not respect from Spanish fans, uh, I think that uh, Lopetegui will still count on Piqué as if nothing has happened. Yeah, he was given uh, quite a rough ride at Spanish training, wasn't he? Listen, Danny, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, it's been uh, great to talk to you. No, it was my pleasure. Uh, you're welcome, and thanks for uh, taking your time to. Uh, and the interest to know what's happening in Barcelona and in Catalonia because it is something remarkable and it needs to be known around the world. So thank you very much. Cheers, Danny. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. Cheers, Danny. That's Danny Sanabri from uh, Radio Cadana Cope in uh, Barcelona. Pep Guardiola spoke about this uh, uh, at the weekend in the press conference after the Chelsea game, actually. And it was was amazing, actually. He didn't say which way he was going to vote, but he did give a speech at a rally earlier uh, in the year. It was fascinating to hear him speak so eloquently on a different subject apart from football. It just shows how passionate he is and how articulate he is. Look, there are greater things to play... um, Look, there are greater things at play rather than football, but it would be, I think, a disaster for the Spanish league and maybe the Spanish game if Barcelona ended up playing elsewhere. I mean, there is a real possibility that if they didn't play in Spain because they wanted to make a political statement, that's fine, that's that, that's what they want to do. It is a lot bigger than, than football. That they could end up being sort of like, we could lose one of the biggest teams in the world ever um, and one of the most revered teams in the world as some sort of like touring Harlem Globetrotters. Yeah, that would be that would be a, a sad situation for everyone involved in football, and and uh, I I can't see a, poss- a a situation where they leave La Liga, even with the the political climate. Given what it is, I think the the finances involved for everyone in in, in the the TV rights, the the sponsorship, the the economy for what Barca brings to. Uh, uh, other grounds when it goes there, the Ferrari that comes with that and the finance, that even in the situation, the unlikely situation, although it's increasingly likely that Catalonia is independent, I can't see any situation where they're they're not in La Liga. Uh, they do have a St George's Cross on their badge. They do indeed. Um, so would that make them welcome in the Premier League? You know, possibly. It's just <laughs> homage to <laughs> the, sky the patron state of who, England. Who wouldn't want to welcome Barcelona to their league? Every, Every single team in the Premier League, I would have thought. Uh, well, maybe. Someone asked me a question, actually. Uh, where do you think uh, Barcelona would finish if they played in the Premier League? And I said, top, next debate. First. <laughs> the Mirror Football Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes via the podcast app and get a fresh Mirror Football podcast as soon as it lands. Still to come, we're going to talk about uh, Antonio Conte a little bit more with Tom Hopkinson from the Sunday Mirror and Sunday People. Uh, We're going to talk to Lauren, the former Arsenal defender, about uh, his role in the Invincibles and looking back on 21 years of Arsene Wenger and what kind of coach was he when they were winning everything. We'll we'll find out in detail from Lauren. Uh, And we're also going to discuss who's the most influential Premier League player this season. But first of all, it's Big Tom's Big News. What you got for us this week? Okay, this week I'm looking at club crests. Oh, badges. Mm, yeah, absolutely. In our first pod, a million moons ago, I mentioned how I was a big fan of the simplicity of Morecambe's shrimp on their crest. Yeah, okay. Um, but now there's a, there's a project called the Football Crest Index um, that's raised enough money through Kickstarter to document the history of club crests. They've enlisted 49 designers to represent the story of their clubs as well as a history of the design behind each crest. It's raising money for charity too, so if you can check it out, it's at the National Football Museum in Manchester next week. Oh, it's great, the National Football Museum. Unbelievable. Get to lift the trophies as well, the Premier League, the FA Cup, fantastic place if you're, if you're in Manchester. Or uh, follow the, the, the Football Crest Index on Twitter for more details too. Uh, there's loads of great stories behind badges as well, isn't there, and crests, and, and, and how they've evolved over the course of the years. And, and one of the ideas of this uh, football index is to, to show that sort of 
the way that they've developed. There's so many different clubs with different stories. Yeah, and the, the, at different points as well. Is they've, they've not they've all evolved at the same time. They've evolved at different stages in in their histories. So fascinating for each club uh, and their own unique personal story and how that's been influenced over the years. Um, I thought I'd give you one club's uh, story as a taster, just to kind Go of reel you in, um, and that is Norwich City. Now, the Norwich City crest, as it currently stands, was a winning entry from Tim Watson on a, from a 1960s local newspaper competition. Um, it's, it's featured a canary in the crest since 1906, and it's a canary because... Do you know? Um, I don't know. No. Uh, because of Dutch immigrant weavers who brought their pet canaries with them when settling in the area in the late 19th century. Mm, that is interesting. Uh, also the reason, of course, why the club colours are yellow and green. Now, that is one of many great stories, and while some might be well-known yeah, to, like to people... Yeah, like the Everton Toffee thing and the... Uh, the, 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 the Rupert Tower, the yeah. The Rupert Tower, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, but others won't be, and there are some stunning original artworks and designs on show too, so that's at the, the Football Crest Index on Twitter, or check them out at the National Football Museum, which is well worth a visit at any time as well, from next Wednesday. Um, so, apart from Chelsea, what's your, what's your favourite crest? Any favourite ones the, out there? The Chelsea crest is much better now than it was. There was a period... In the 90s and the early 2000s where it just basically changed to CFC and a lion. Ken Bates changed it, tried to modernise it. It looked ridiculous. It's back to sort of like, almost like the original badge now. It's, mm. it's, it's much, much better. Um, and City, I know, have changed theirs recently as well, back to what was an yeah. original badge. And I always like to see those old school those old school um, the crests. Um, I, I've always had a thing for Coventry's, Coventry cities. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. The elephant, the castle turrets, the phoenix, it's detailed, it's complicated, but most importantly, it was the first ever shiny that I got in Panini 86. Now, it's funny you say that. I think they must, there must have been a, a surplus of, of Coventry shinies because that's etched in my mind as well, the Coventry City crest from Panini 86. Well, you never got the Man United badge, the Arsenal badge, or the Chelsea. Well, you probably did get the Chelsea badge at the time. It was probably <laughs> just given away for free. Um, but um, the, 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 the Coventry badge, I think there was, there was quite a few of them produced. It was one of those first shinies that you always got in the early packets. They didn't release the other ones till later. They were very you know, canny about the way they did that in Panini. But I remember the first ever shiny I got was the Coventry City badge, and I, I thought it was the most glorious thing. They did, in, in Panini 86, they did those shinies brilliantly as well. Yeah, fantastic. They, they were, it, it, was mu- it was much more of a thing to have one, and it, it sort of glimmered in the light. It was, it was brilliant, and it always sticks in my memory as a result of that. So, yeah, Coventry City's crest. Is my and favorite. they had the, the double, the smaller double Scottish, which is a little bit patronising, I suppose, but it was always quite funny at the time to have the double Scottish players. Yeah, the Scottish the First back. Division, as it was at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think it was still the actually it was Premier Division, wasn't it? Oh, was it? Yeah, I think they had a Premier Division. I don't know why, uh, but um, they um, had one sticker, two faces. I like the cartoon mascots as well, the yeah, nicknames of good. the teams. That the was citizens, the Glaziers. They used to call Crystal Palace the Glaziers. The no hatters, one calls them that anymore. Luton. Yeah, all of that. Brilliant. That's, an- that's another big Tom's big news. There we go. Watch this space. The Mirror Football Podcast. Tom Hopkinson from the Sunday Mirror and Sunday People is still with us. Big Tom, the producer as well. Nothing like a bit of knee-jerk. Last week it was Italian radio. Reports over the weekend suggested he can't wait to get back to Italy because he loves the pasta so much. Uh, he can't get through to Abramovich or Marina Granovskaya. Uh, these the big headlines surrounding the Chelsea manager, Antonio Conte. His team were outclassed at the weekend. Uh, you and I were both there, Tom. Um, and afterwards, um, he came out, he said all the right things, Antonio Conte. But ultimately... His team were done, weren't they? Uh, completely done, yeah. Manchester City were fantastic uh, at the weekend. Uh, very, very impressed with them. Um, look, we waxed lyrical on Sunday morning about Kevin De Bruyne, obviously, given the goal, given his uh, history with Chelsea and just given the way he played. David Silver, of course, always gets the plaudits as well. There were some cracking performances all around, but I have to give special mention to uh, the lads at the back, John Stones and Nicholas Otamendi, who have come in for a fair share of criticism, more than their fair share of criticism over the last couple of seasons, but uh, they were excellent. Helped, of course, by the fact that Alvaro Morata picked up an injury and uh, Conte decided uh, that it wasn't worth sending on a striker as his replacement. He uh, he pushed Hazard forward and sent on Willian as well. You got some criticism um, for that afterwards, didn't you? Got I mean, a lot of criticism for that, yeah. And, and I think rightly so, you know. I mean, it, it just seemed... He, he set up with five at the back, which uh, at home, uh, albeit against a side that are scoring goals for fun, 
just struck me as being a little bit negative at this stage of the season. It struck me as being a lot negative at this stage of the season. And to then to not send on a player who was absolutely flying confidence-wise, having scored in week, you know, we've seen all these things he's put on social media about just call for the Batman. And clearly the only person who didn't fancy calling for the Batman was Antonio Conte. Um, the model of keeping uh, managers on their toes, similar to Watford and Saints, we spoke about this uh, last week in the programme. Um, but... Um, it sort of works for Chelsea, doesn't it? Emanalo, Granovskaya, Bruce Buck, they run the operation and, and they like it the way it is. And, and the trophy cabinet likes it too. Five Premier Leagues, four FA Cups, three League Cups, two, Euro, uh, two um, uh, Community Shields, a Europa, Europa League and a, Europe, a Europa League and a Champions League in the last 13 years. Uh, if you don't like it, this is the sort of message they give to their managers, you know what's going to change and that's going to be him rather than them, isn't it? I mean, he... he Long-term future doesn't seem to be in Chelsea's sort of method of working. No, I mean, every time a new manager comes into Chelsea or an old manager comes back to Chelsea, we speak to them about, uh, you know, how long they want to stay at the club and uh, whether it's Mourinho telling us he wants to be back there to build a dynasty over the next 10 years or or when Conte arrived. I mean, what I've liked about Conte, actually, is he's never really seen this as a long-term job. He's always said, look, yeah, it'd be nice if it was a long-term job, but he's, he's just been so realistic about it. And I actually quite liked the fact that in the summer, after winning... The title, and clearly one or two issues going on over transfer policies and Conte not being happy uh, that he wasn't backed as much as he thought he should be. I quite like the fact that they just altered the terms of his contract but didn't extend it by uh, a, a further time period because... So much in football, I mean, ask Frank de Boer, so much in football can change very quickly. But, you know, Antonio Conte is realistic enough to know that if things don't work out for him this season, it doesn't matter whether he's got an extra three years on his contract. He, he's probably, you know, he probably would be out of a job. I remember when he first came in, he, he made it clear that he'd spoken to Carlo Ancelotti about, uh, you know, everything that goes on at Chelsea. And you can't tell me that Carlo, a man who was fired the year after winning the double in in a side room at Everton, didn't say to him, "Listen, this is exactly how it is. It's great when you're winning, but the second you start losing, things are going to change." So I just think there's a, a sort of healthy dose of realism from both sides, really, in in the Conte appointment, and I think it will be. It's been successful already. Whether it's or not it's successful this se- this season remains to be seen. But I think, you know, short term, it's going to work for the club. They've already added one trophy and, and I, I don't really have a problem. Do you think he'll stay for the whole season? Well, he, I mean, he, he, unless results sort of pick up um, in, in terms of, you know, look, they've only lost to, to Manchester City this one game um, since the start of the season. So I, I think things are, things will keep plodding along. They'll be OK. I don't think on the, the form that we saw from them on, on Saturday, they were completely outclassed and outplayed, outpassed as well. And th- that's not uh, a team that is going to win the league this season on that form. But as Pep Guardiola made the point, you know, last season, they, they had a bit of a wobble round about this time uh, when they lost to Arsenal, they, uh, they lost to Liverpool as well. And then all of a sudden, they go on a 15-game winning run and, and things change completely. And Man City, who started incredibly well, drop off the cliff and, and all of a sudden uh, have gone to pot and, 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 you know, can't get near Chelsea in the end. So I think it's too early to start saying he won't see out the season. But I don't think any of us would be surprised if he didn't see out the season. Sam was a bit anxious about the size of the Chelsea squad, the strength and depth at the beginning of the season. And they probably are facing their most, uh, well, their sternest test so far now that Morata looks like he's going to miss a string of games with this hamstring injury. Um, How do you think they're going to cope in his absence? Well, it's it's going to be fascinating to see uh, what what route Antonio Conte takes, you know, does he does he push, does he play the, the, the old false nine that he uh, he switched to at the weekend or, or does he give uh, Batshuayi his chance? Um, I, I mean, I, I, who knows what he's going to do? He's got a couple of weeks now with the international break to, to, to work on things. Um, they've got quite a, a favourable fixture up next. I think it's Crystal Palace away, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, uh, Crystal Palace have to win a game sooner rather than later, but um, if, you were, if you were Chelsea having lost to Manchester City and lost in the fashion you did, albeit at the end of a tough week in which they'd had to go to Madrid and they'd had to go to Stoke as well. Um, if if you were going to pick any fixture to come back from the international break, I think you'd be looking at Palace. Um, so 
look, I, I don't know what will be in Antonio Conte's mind. He's he's, he's shown us over the last uh, twelve months that he's quite happy to change systems and formations and 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 work things uh, however he, he sees fit. But of course, then on the back of the uh, Palace game, they've got Roma in the uh, the Champions League, and they didn't have that to worry about last year. So mm. it's always going to be a burden, albeit. I would think for most managers a welcome burden, uh, and I would hope he gives Batshuayi a chance because the lad has, you know, he scored one or two goals um, when he has been given his chance in in recent weeks, and uh, I think he, he deserves at least a couple of games to to show what he can do as and when Morata is injured or suspended. Cheers, Fletch. Thank you. <laughs> All the best. <laughs> the Mirror Football Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes via the podcast app and get a fresh Mirror Football podcast as soon as it lands. Arsene Wenger celebrated 21 years as Arsenal manager this weekend. It hasn't all been bad, despite being caught in between the board, the fans, his own principles, the cash flow in recent times. He is the only manager in Premier League history to guide a team through a whole season unbeaten. Uh, Let's look back on his career with one of those invincibles. Lauren made 32 appearances that season and he joins us now from Spain. Hi, pal. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Nice to speak to you again. Um, What a season that was. Clearly, that season where you went through unbeaten was the pinnacle of your career and I suppose the pinnacle of his too. I mean, uh, I think uh, that was uh, a marvellous achievement. You know, what we managed to do that season was, you know, uh, unbelievable. I think he will stay there for forever, you know. What set him apart as a manager back then? What he said to us, I, I think uh, he was the only one that he was thinking about uh, uh, because he, he saw the potential of that generation and uh, he believed that we could do it. But no one, no one, none of us thought about, uh, you know, being beaten or things like that. I mean, I think... Uh, I'm on the dressing room, everybody will just try to win the next round, try to improve every single game, try to improve in the training ground, try to improve any any situation, try to resolve day by day. And this is the key. I mean, if you are in, in, in a team that you're just thinking about uh, the end of the season, you cannot achieve your, your goals. I think uh, everybody, uh, we, were, we had the conscience that uh, we want to be the best every single day and we want to improve every single Again, no think about you know them beating or things like that. That's why we we managed to to do it, to do it at the end of uh, that that season. What what was Arsene Wenger like with the players? Because he seems to protect them from criticism. Does he does he absorb all of that from you? Does he protect the players well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, Wenger is the kind of manager that he's not looking about the individual. He's looking about the whole team. I mean. Uh, uh, we, we all make uh, uh, bad decisions, we all make mistakes, we all make uh, errors, but overall, if you cover, he, he tried to uh, talk about the, the mistakes or the errors, or it didn't go to individuals, he, he just looking about the whole thing. I mean, I think that was in our time one of the key issues, because, you know, when people uh, had a bad day or have a, a bad game, you know, we don't focalize everything in that player, or it doesn't focalize everything in one in one member of the team. So overall, it was the, the kind of manner was looking about the whole institution, not only uh, a few ones. So uh, I don't think it stay. It keeps staying in that in that way. What was he like on the training ground when you were playing? Because he has had a little bit of criticism from some who believe he doesn't work on defensive shape. He doesn't work on the opposition. He doesn't scout them in a similar way to other managers do. How did you find him? I don't know what other managers did, but what I certainly know that uh, he emphasised in that we have to take care about uh, the decision making because you, as a defender, uh, people talking about uh, how bad the, the the back four, how good is the back four. But the succeed of the back four is depend about the team. If the whole team defend, it's easy for the back four. If the whole team doesn't defend the right way, it's gonna be difficult for the back four. But uh, um, particularly that back four, he was talking about how to be to work together. So is it fair to say then that he he really emphasised on the team strengths and the team's decisions rather than what opposition you were facing in the next game? He didn't change the shape or the tactics exactly. for the for the team. Is that is that fair to say? Exactly. Exactly, but I think um, this is our period. I've been watching Arsenal over this year. It has been changed that. Now he's taking more care about 
the opposition. If you see, after 18 years, 19 years playing 4-4-2, now he's been playing with three at the back. That means that he takes care about what other people do because football is keep changing every single day, every single year. And I think he's been sharp enough changes that system and uh, that system will uh, get the result last year winning uh, the FA Cup against Chelsea but what happened is uh, over to because people are now demanding to win the league which is not easy it's difficult but there is a few factors there that I see why we don't win the league uh, one factor is that he hasn't got the eight seven eight player that they were fighting for him and the second fact will be there is more teams that are we, they are really looking to win the league. But it's uh, like a five six teams, and uh, and the third factor is that we miss uh, in nowadays. With all my respect, uh, I'm on that dressing room. With all my respect, but I think we miss uh, something that drives uh, teams to to challenge and to win the Premier League. And when you I say we, we miss something, some leadership inside. There is something that. You have, we don't have. You know, I, I mean, uh, nowadays people are not, uh, in general, in general, not only Arsenal, people are not fighting for the institution. They're not fighting for the flag. They're not fighting for make uh, uh, um, the whole institution proud. I think people are more selfish when they're looking more for the individual uh, success rather than. The whole, uh, uh, the whole, the whole club. It's a big issue. So they need a bit more leadership on the pitch. Yeah, I believe so. I and believe so, definitely. Of course, there are all those things combined. But so, do you think that the players are less committed, are less focused on on winning than than the players that you had playing alongside you? Definitely, definitely. But I'm talking not just Arsenal. I mean, I mean, overall football. I think there is more. Uh, if the manager says something to the players, the guy, there is too many people surrounding the youngsters in the way that there is the guy from the communication, there is the agent, there is the father, there is the master, there is the, the guy, uh, uh, the own physio, the, the, you know. So mm. there is too many people when they are, the manager says something to the, the, to the lad, uh, they listen around them. So it's more difficult. Uh, to control nowadays the youngsters, the young players, the young generation. And it's a big issue. Hmm. Uh, what are you doing now? Because I'm reliably informed you're on your way to a lecture very shortly. Are you studying still? Yeah, I'm still... Uh, um, I go now to the next level at the university. I'm in the second course now. And, uh, you know, I'm studying and keep... Uh, uh, maintain my own issue, which is no issue. <laughs> um, you were a gold medalist at the 2000 uh, Olympics with Cameroon. You won the African Cup of Nations with them as well. You're a big part of those indomitable lions during the the 2000s. What's going on? Are we going to have a World Cup without Cameroon? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a shame. It's a shame, uh, but but still, still, still not finished. But it will be a shame if Cameroon doesn't uh, manage to qualify to the World Cup because I think. Uh, it's one of the best uh, nation in Africa, and um, uh, you, you always, you know, see Cameroon in the World Cup is uh, something that the, the the population deserves. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, it's a pleasure. Action, reaction, and the best columnists and analysis. This is Mirror Football. So who is the most influential player in the Premier League? Is it Kane? Is it Lukaku? Is it Kevin De Bruyne? Is it Eden Hazard? Um, David McDonald is the Mirror's Manchester correspondent, otherwise known as Disco. Hello, David. How are you? Hi, guys. How you doing? Great to have you on. Uh, Those players that I've mentioned have been having a party of their own since the beginning of the the season. Harry Kane has now scored uh, the same number of goals as Ronaldo in 73 less games. Amazing. 73 less games. Kevin De Bruyne scored his first goal of the season at the weekend, but has been making City tick for a while. Lukaku's got 7-7 in in the Premier League. Hazard led Chelsea to a wonderful win in Europe. Morata's hit the ground running. But who are you nominating, David? Well, we're sport for choice, aren't we, Sam, really? I mean, the the guys you mentioned there, they've all got a, a case for being you know the most influential player in the Premier League um, I mean for me being in Manchester you know I see a lot of Kevin De Bruyne uh, and, and Emmanuel Matic and you know it's really between those two for me in terms of the games I see on, on a regular basis obviously uh, Harry Kane's had an incredible start to the season and they're sort of single-handedly you know firing Spurs you know 
uh, onwards this season. Um, but I think for me, um, I think the, the, the buy so far this summer has been Nemanja Matic um, in, in, a, in a very understated way. You know, he doesn't get grab the headlines, he doesn't get the goals, he doesn't play the kind of def- defence-splitting part to set up goals. But he just has that very sort of understated role at the back, you know, keeps things ticking over. Uh, he's great on the ball. He, he breaks up play. He, he gives until Pogba was injured. Obviously, he gave Pogba the kind of license to go forward and play in that more advanced attacking role. And you saw that. I think Pogba got four or five goals before his injury. Uh, and he's done the same with Fellaini. Fellaini's come in for Pogba, and again, you saw at the weekend uh, Fellaini scored twice. And and Matic really gives him that freedom to to, to push forward. Um, and and look, everyone in football has been saying it for weeks now. You know, we can't understand how and why Chelsea let him go to United. Um, you know, for 40 million or 35 plus plus five in add-ons. So I think for me, he's been uh, the most influential player, albeit in a in a in a, a not overt uh, manner. But I mean, certainly you can't. Uh, under uh, underestimate, undervalue his his importance to United and, and the start they've made. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, that the uh, two players that you've mentioned there have both been sold by Chelsea, Kevin De Bruyne and uh, and Emmanuel yeah. Matic. I mean, it does it does bring into sharp focus the the transfer policy of that club. But anyway, that's that's probably a different discussion. Throw Lukaku different in there as well, and Lukaku as well. In fact, yeah, <laughs> Lukaku as well. Yeah, that's oh, going particularly well for Michael Emanalo. This <laughs> that's a new idea for a podcast. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to go with De Bruyne. I'll explain my reasons in just a few moments. But who do you think? I mean, as a Liverpool fan, is there a Liverpool player that that stands out for you? Well, most Salah this season's been electrifying to watch. I was there at the Champions League the other week and um, he was unbelievable. Um, Kevin De Bruyne is probably my favourite player outside of my own club to watch, but influential-wise, if, we t- if we're measuring influence as gaining points in football games, it has to be Harry Kane, particularly because Deli Ali hasn't had the best of starts this year and Harry Kane is winning football games for Tottenham. That is one thing that is definitely true, isn't it, David? I mean, he's ruthless. 11 goals in six games since February the 28th, 2016, which is pretty much 18 months ago. Harry Kane has got 44 goals in that time. Aguero, 36. Lukaku, 34. But as you say, Tommy, it carries Tottenham without him, especially in the last month. They would have been in serious trouble, actually, wouldn't they? Yeah, they would, absolutely, guys. I mean, Kane is, as, as we say, sort of single-handedly carrying Tottenham. And, and he's taken on that, that, that sort of mantle of team leader. Uh, he's scoring the goals. He's, he's, he's all-round play. I mean, you see the positions he gets into. He's not just a finisher. He actually engineers those chances and, and, and executes them for himself. So I think he's certainly got a case for it. As I said at the outset, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the players that I see you know, week in, week out in Manchester uh, but I certainly don't think you could have any qualms if you were to say that Harry Kane is is, is arguably on current form you know, the most influential player in the league. I mean, the stats speak for themselves. The goal, the goal stats that you mentioned there. Uh, I think he's got double. I think I saw a stat saying as well in 2017 he's got double the amount of goals I mean, in terms of English strikers in the Premier League. I think he's got mm-hmm. 27 in, in the calendar year. I think Jamie Vardy is the next English striker with 13. So that just shows you how how you know he's streets ahead of every other striker um, you know in the in the league. Certainly in you know in, in terms of English strikers. Uh, and I think he's only going to get better. You know, I mean, he's young. He's, he's, um, you know, he's, he's on the way up. And I think, um, I think certainly his influence is, is, he's carrying Tottenham at the moment, as you guys said. But if Harry Kane isn't available, maybe we really should look at uh, Scott Sinclair because he's got ten goals <laughs> this season. Sorry, I, shouldn't laugh. <laughs> I don't know why are you laughing. Five of those against Linfield and Astana. What? what? <laughs> What? Stop it! You're being, in, you're being disrespectful to uh, Scottish football just by even laughing there. <laughs> I can't speak. Sorry. No, Scott Sinclair's done very well at Celtic. I think De Bruyne is the best player in the league and the most influential for me because I, I think he's one of the best players I've seen in the last decade. This guy's provided more assists than any other player in the Premier League last season. 18 of them. He hit the woodwork nine times on his own in the Premier League last season. Mm. He does it all so quietly as well. There's no real fuss surrounding him either. Chelsea have got to be kicking themselves that they let him go. One player I, I would like to mention though is um, Cesar Afbilicueta. Love it when you say it. Say it again. Cesar Afbilicueta. Um, as far as Chelsea... Usual, cons- usual spelling, yeah. <laughs> as far as Chelsea are concerned, he, he's a player they can't do without, isn't he? Because, as we mentioned in last week's pod, he, he's created most of Morata's goals this season. He can play in a variety of positions for Antonio Conte. He is essential to them. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, look, I mean, I, I, I haven't seen a lot of, a lot of uh, Aspilicueta this season, but, I mean, certainly those, those stats speak for themselves in terms of, you know, the uh, the... 
the uh, assists and 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 in, in terms of you know what he what he brings to the team. Um, but I think going back to De Bruyne, I mean, I, I was torn. You know, when, when doing this, um, we asked to sort of name our most influential player, and I, as I said I was torn between De Bruyne and, and and Matic. I think De Bruyne, as you say, Sam. He does it in such an effortless way. Um, I think Silva's got more assists this season. I think he's got six, certainly in the Premier League, to, to De Bruyne's three. But I think De Bruyne's been involved in something like 15 of their last, directly involved in 15 of their, of their last 17 goals. And I think, you know, he, again, that was his first goal of the season against Chelsea. But it's the effortless way in which he does it. And his work rate off the ball as well. Mm. I mean, I'm lucky to, to, to watch City, you know, um, you know on, on a sort of weekly basis. And if you just watch De Bruyne as well, I mean, the, 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 mark, you know, the, the ground he covers and off the ball. And, and obviously, that's a hallmark of a trademark of, of Guardiola's teams. You know, it's, they like to ha- they have the ball in possession. But when they haven't got it, they're, they're hunting it down in packs. And De Bruyne's work rate on the ground he covers uh, is, is, is phenomenal. Um, and as you say, the assist as well. I mean, I, I, I pick out. I mean, there was a fantastic goal against Chelsea. You know, the, the one-touch move with um, with Gabriel Jesus. But I think for me, that pass to Sergio Aguero for the first goal in the, the five-nil win over Liverpool just sums up De Bruyne. You know, his vision, his execution. You know, he, he, he can have defences on the back foot and uh, in seconds. So you know, for me, it was a tough one. I mean, you know, De Bruyne and Matic for me, and obviously Kane up there as well. Um, certainly, you know, we're, we're, as I said at the outset, we're sport for choice in terms of influential players. You loved that ball from Kevin De Bruyne, didn't you, in that Liverpool game? Yeah, and, and you only I, mentioned it about fifteen times. Uh, I've, I've, and I saw a carbon <laughs> copy of it on Sunday because it was exactly the same pass from John Joe Shelby that yeah. led to the deflected, ridiculous goal that it was. But anyway, it's funny. <laughs> it's good that you mentioned Dav- David Silva there because Jamie Carragher always mentions Silva as one of the greatest ever players in the Premier League. So he, that, that's probably a good shout as well for yeah, David he's, he's, he's a fantastic player, that is for yeah. sure. It's, it's, it's definitely a debate that is going to continue and I'm sure it will continue on the Mirror website um, for the course of the week. Uh, Crossy went for Kane. Mike Waters went for Kevin De Bruyne like me. Richard Innes went for Jamie Vardy. Um, Hamish Mackay for Alexis Sanchez. And no one plump for Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. Oh, get off the lad's case. Surprising that. Yeah. Uh-uh. I do think, I mean, just a sort of honourable mention for David Silva. I mean, I've, I've sort of long said since he arrived at Manchester City that it would be a travesty if he didn't win the PFA Player of the Year mm. or the, the Football Writers FWA Footballer mm. of the Year trophy. Because I think he's wonderful. I think Jamie Cagher's right. I think he's probably been you know, one of the best players, not the best player in the Premier League for the last five, six seasons. You know the 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 culture way in which he plays, the, the time on the ball, that the passes he picks. I mean, I, I really do think that he's that he's worthy of, of mention. Um, and as I said, you know, he's got six assists already. You know, the most at Manchester City, who are top of the Premier League. So he's he's doing something right. But again, in a very understated way, you know, you look at um, you know Aguero grab, grabbed all the headlines with his goals until his in, until the obviously the car crash roared him out. De Bruyne again grabbing the headlines, but David Silva is you know enduring sort of value to man city you know is 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 there i think if you look at that goal as well it's actually his run uh he, he drags i don't know which defender it is but he actually drags the defender away with his run across which enables um, de bruyne to have the space to shoot so again he's he's playing the top of his game uh, although he's not getting you know um, a huge amount of publicity and, and, and credit for it uh, david before we let you go we're going to put you on the spot here and i'm sorry because he didn't get a mention in this debate but we did mention him last week albeit as part of a wisecrack a quick yeah. word on harry winks getting a call up to the england national squad were you surprised by that yeah i i was like i mean obviously with with with, with the withdrawals um you know uh, it's, it's created it created that opportunity for him um, but I do think you know he's a he's a player of huge talent. You know he's got a great future ahead of him. Uh, I mean England only need two points, don't they? For these these two games, obviously they're they're important games. But I think it's good. I think it's good that we're, we're picking a young player. You know, an emerging talent. I think Gareth Southgate has has done that. You know, since becoming the manager, he's looked to the future. He's looked to young players and looked, uh, you know, not looked to kind of you know experienced players in the past. He's looked to kind of you know, push the team forward. And I think you know you're only going to do that by exposing these guys to to those kind of experiences. So I think it's great to see Harry Winks in the, in, in the squad and I think it'll be a valuable valuable experience for him to, to be to be involved in the England setup. Top man, David. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers, guys. The Mirror Football Podcast. That's it from uh, this week's show. A lot covered. Uh, remember, you can get involved in the most influential player debate on Twitter and on our Facebook page and the Club's Crest stuff too. Teach us something about your Club Crest. We'd love to hear uh, from you. Uh, we haven't had a, a chance to really get into the Fantasy League because of the fact that we've had so many great guests today, uh, but that's probably a good thing because I'm 158th in the table. Uh, I'm not far ahead with that 121st, oh, uh, but we've got the same leader still. Stephen Hall is still out in front 
at 482 points, but he's Leeds being cut by Neil Hughes with the original Reds at 466. Well done to those uh, in particular this week. Um, Lukaku only got me 12 points, I think. Same. Do you know the worst thing is I could have had a really smashing week. I had Fellaini and I put him on the bench because I thought that he was going to be injured and he played and, and scored, scored twice <laughs> and got 16 points yeah. and he was sitting on my bench waving at me looking... Uh, Rather happy with himself. Yeah, Morata did brilliantly for me as well. Did he? Mm. Yeah. Injury. He's going to miss six games, apparently. Yeah, I've already transferred him out. Oh, that was quick. That's yeah. ruthless. You're so ruthless. Six weeks. Um, what are you up to this week? Uh, I'm not watching international football, probably. Oh, stop but... being so down international football. It's pathetic. No, gonna, it's not. It's terrible. But no, it I'm... isn't. But it isn't terrible. This is the most pivotal week in international football history for some nations. Holland, for example, two live games. Both on ITV4. Make sure you're tuned in. The commentator's really looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) People are going to think this is just a ruse for you to get them to watch the telly. Okay, I'll tell you what. For you, I'm going to watch Holland. Just for you. There might be a World Cup without Holland. It's important. Belarus and Sweden, both games live on ITV. Okay. I'll be be watching. That's it. This week, I'll be watching the Dutch. Okay. And I'm going to go to uh, Scotland as well. I'm I'm going right now to Hamden Park. I'm looking forward to that. Massive game for them. Huge game. Who are they playing? They're playing Slovakia and Slovenia. They need everything to go their way. Like They need the best spell of luck they've ever had. They're missing Stuart Armstrong, who's a very good player. They're missing uh, Scott Brown, who's the heartbeat in midfield. Uh, They play well in the last international break it's going to be difficult this time they've called up Callum McGregor though which is a good idea because he's he's got a lot of goals in a short amount of period from uh, midfield for Celtic this season okay. so look I'm, I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that it works out for them because it's been a it's been an interesting journey this qualification period covering Scotland and I'm hoping that it comes to a magnificent conclusion for Gordon Strachan because it's a it's a, it's a rain defining two games Okay, well, I hope Scotland do well as well then. Okay, that's it from us. Um, we are actually back from the Mirror HQ in London next week. We're going. We, we do this from Manchester. It should be pointed out every week. Uh, but we are going to London next week. I'm taking you on tour. Yeah, on tour around uh, Canary Wharf. You looking forward to that? Yeah, you're going to take me to lunch, aren't you? Um, I think we're going to put that on the Mirror expenses. Okay. Um, unless Gareth Southgate can find someone else he'd rather call up, of course, in which case we won't be here next week. Oh, Harry Winks will come for a pizza. Tweet us your questions before every pod at Stay On Your Feet. The Mirror Football Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes via the podcast app and get a fresh Mirror Football Podcast as soon as it lands.